I'm Alexandra Joe, Director of Outreach and Education at Parting Stone, and you're listening to the Death Curious Podcast. This week, we are doing things a little differently. I'm joined by artist, illustrator, and my dear friend and loved one, Christopher Stoll. Chris is the owner and creator behind Multiverse Books, and as a very important person in my own life, is one of the people I most frequently talk with about hard things like death. I wanted to have Chris on the show because until now, we've only featured people within the death care profession as guests, and I thought it would be insightful and balancing to provide space for conversations about death with people who have experienced grief from the other side of things. Chris has a unique perspective because, like me, he is queer and polyamorous. Living in these so-called alternative worlds necessarily means that grief and interacting with systems like death care are experienced differently by folks like Chris and I. In this episode, we dive into how grief affects relationships, how our relationships inform our grief, and the nuances that come with being polyamorous and experiencing grief and interacting with the death care system. You're jumping into a conversation with myself and Christopher Stoll. Okay, cool. So how do you want to be introduced on this podcast? What's your title? What do you want listeners to know about who you are? Mm. My name is Christopher Stoll. I'm an author and illustrator in Santa Fe, but sometimes known as Daddy, Sir, or Yes, Please, More. <laughs> cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, official titles. Very, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, for listen- official than others. <laughs> for listeners who may not know context for those last few, what, do, uh, what, what are you referring to with those? Well, I'm a uh, longtime polyamorous, 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 polyamorous <laughs> kinkster. <laughs> Going on 12 years, I've been involved heavily in the kink and polyamory community wherever I've lived Mm -hmm. and tried to build systems of connection, of social engagement, and of sort of permanent mutual aid wherever that happens to be. Mm -hmm. Yes. And are you comfy with listeners knowing that that is indeed how we know each other? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So we are involved in polyamory in Santa Mm -hmm. Fe together. We are... Not romantic partners, but deeply involved in each other's lives mm-hmm. in intimate and loving ways. Do you think your listeners are familiar with the word metamor? Um, probably not. Mm. Probably not. What's the perfect time for some definitions? Yeah. Webster's Dictionary defines... <laughs> no. Um... <laughs> I don't think we're metamors, though. No, not, not specifically. Yeah. But mm-hmm. metamors are metamors? Are we? I don't know. I don't think so. Every time I start talking about your important place in my life, I have to pull out like a sheet of parchment and begin drawing like the <laughs> linear, like the, yeah, the genealogies of like the Game of Thrones families. It's yeah. like trying to explain. Yeah. yeah, I think so too. Because so for those of you that don't know, a metamor is a partner of your partner who is not your partner. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> so, that by like, association, you have... A relationship with a right of, a friendship mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. in even intimate connection sometimes sure. yeah but that's never how i describe you because there's not ever been i've never been dating someone that you're also dating even though it, but we have our own thing mm-hmm. that is it is very fulfilling and exciting to me because mm-hmm. it kind of falls under that relationship anarchy like just because we're not having these titles and these labels and these expectations doesn't mean that we can't be very important to mm-hmm. each other and so aries is Perhaps a one-time protege, now community peer, 
occasional superior. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, let's avoid those hierarchical terms. <laughs> indeed, mm-hmm. yes, practicing non-hierarchy but is the thing that I do. So We've been moving through the same social spaces for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that's, that's really beautiful for me about polyamory is that roles need not be strictly defined. That, mm-hmm. you know, using sex to connect or communicate mm-hmm. or romance to connect and communicate can mm-hmm. put someone in multiple categories at once. So Mm -hmm. you could be a close friend, an occasional partner, um, or dare I say lover? Is that? I think that's right. No. You have to censor that word. No, I don't think so. (laughs) I I like the word lover. I Mm -hmm. think it it can be a a nice descriptor Mm -hmm. when you don't want to use more socially loaded Mm -hmm. words and terminology. So instead of like girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, someone I'm intimately involved with Mm -hmm. could be my lover. And it, doesn't have the connotation of like, yeah, long-term partnership or escalation or mm-hmm. expectation in those ways. Yeah. So. Companion, confidant, yeah. peer. Paramour, mm-hmm. all of these things. Sure, it's complicated. It right sure off the bat, is. Yeah. Talking about poly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so listeners might be thinking, well, this is a podcast about death. So why the <laughs> hell am I listening to all of this relationship stuff? But I think that these things are very intimately connected because love, relationships, our loved ones, the people who are closest to us impact the way that we deal with grief and all of that stuff becomes intertwined when loss and death inevitably happen. And in like in most spaces in our society that we currently exist in, infrastructure in all areas is set up to really only consider the nuclear family, Mm -hmm. right? You have parents who are monogamous with each other, who have children who might have spouses who are monogamous with each other. And that family unit is your next of kin. And it doesn't really take into account people who might have multiple spouses or multiple partners. Mm -hmm. One is a spouse or two are a spouse, children with multiple people and, and end of life care is no exception. Mm -hmm. So it's not really set up to accommodate or support people in alternate lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And we can also talk about like different forms of grief that are also often disenfranchised Mm -hmm. the way that grief moves through and navigates relationships as we have them. And, Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of why I wanted to talk to you today as a fellow relationship enthusiast. (laughs) enthusiast. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's an amazing place to start, Cool, which is, you know, to say that, grief and love relationships, they intersect with all of our lives. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, right off the bat, I think it's fair to acknowledge that in the modern world, that modernity suffers from an acute loneliness (laughs) epidemic, Mm -hmm. that like people are often unable to find community, unable to find connection out of these prescribed Mm -hmm. sort of hierarchical and historically contingent roles, but Mm -hmm. be that like the nuclear family, which is often kind of tightly restricted, Mm -hmm. isolated, Mm -hmm. and of course, unchosen. Yeah. Um, But I think it's fair to say that for like the intensity with which grief can affect an individual, that often dealing with that depends on, if not romantic relationships, then Mm -hmm. close ties in the community. Mm -hmm. And that's often lacking in my opinion. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I mean, this is something that I I find myself talking to a lot of people about often, actually one of them being Audrey, mm. your one of your partners. 
um, and my friend. And Audrey talks often about like the lack of third spaces Mm -hmm. in today's culture, especially in recent years for our generation and how we don't really have infrastructure for building community in traditional ways. Like Mm -hmm. if you're supposed to have one monogamous partner, that is the most important thing in your life. It can be really isolating. And especially if we're not like going to church together or doing community square dances together. I'm thinking of like what my grandparents used to do to build community. Right. And that either now all revolves around like drinking at bars, which is not really a place to connect deeply. And critically costs money. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, For the mm -hmm. listeners out there who might not know, a third space Mm -hmm. is a a social space separate from the work or the home, Mm -hmm. where those are the two spaces that you generally, you know, move back Mm -hmm. and forth between. Mm -hmm. This would be a a space to congregate, Mm -hmm. essentially like to linger, Mm -hmm. to exist without the pressure to spend money without the need to perform a specific task where mm-hmm. like society sort of blossoms and functions and that in the modern day, there are spaces for leisure, mm-hmm. but there are not spaces that are designed to linger. And even, you know, coffee shops and mm-hmm. park benches have been eviscerated by this need to make our society in like hostile to homeless people, to mm-hmm. unhoused mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. So there's very little space in which to simply exist. Right. And so in in that world in which we don't have these spaces to be for long periods of time connecting deeply, yeah, our relationships become very strained. We become isolated. We become lonely. And then we grieve maybe what we're not even aware of that we're missing, which is community, which. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think how best to put this, I think perhaps like the romantic relationship mm-hmm. is one of the few things that in modern society is still given a kind of like almost sublime, almost metaphysical weight Mm -hmm. where the expectation of finding the one Mm -hmm. of finding romance is treated with a kind of spiritual reverence. Mm -hmm. You see it, you know, in film, Mm -hmm. in children's media, in the way that these things are discussed in the way that they're treated. I think that in the modern day, a lot of ritualized behavior has been sort of gradually stripped out and, Mm -hmm. That, you know, the boundary between, for instance, like adolescence and adulthood is not clearly defined in a lot of Western cultures, but one of the few remaining rituals that is given significance is marriage, right? where there's symbolic significance, where there's mm-hmm. spiritual significance, mm-hmm. and where there is also legal and social significance heavily placed on this. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this raison d'etre, this kind of driving force, this finish line for a lot of you know, individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can have an extremely destabilizing effect on identity, Mm -hmm. but it also means that like one of the only portions of our life that is not commodified, that is not stricken by isolation, by individualism is, you know, romantic life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's worthy of discussion, especially how it runs that, that kind of myth of the one or, the idea of this as, you know, the reason for being to find your other half, your counterpart runs counter to the practice of polyamory. Mm-hmm. It does. And maybe I'll ask you to talk a little bit more about the relationship of that dynamic mm-hmm. to grief and grieving. Mm-hmm. Like what maybe in two parts, you've you've set up a pretty clear picture of like, relationship romantic expectations Mm -hmm. in the west in Mm -hmm. 
modern culture and done a good job of explaining kind of why so much emphasis is put on marriage as an end goal or success, mark of success <laughs> in a relationship. And it's because it's one of the only rituals that we have left from, from the past. It's mm-hmm. because of emphasis on the nuclear family and capitalism mm-hmm. and all these other things. But yeah, how do you think, where do you think that leaves us in terms of dealing with grief? And then maybe a secondary question is like, have you ever thought about the grief of longing for or missing those wider, broader, more communal connections? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the effects of this, this special category of relationship where you, you know your partner is a kind of primary and all-encompassing importance above that of your friends, in many cases above that of your family, mm-hmm. it can be this like, single critical lifeline towards Mm -hmm. connection in the modern day, but I don't know if it's always ideal because should that link be severed or disrupted, if it's dysfunctional, Mm -hmm. then you have no alternative, no other place in which you can seek romantic, sexual, Mm -hmm. interpersonal, intimate connection. Mm -hmm. And my, like, you know, I'm not married. I have many friends who are, and I respect deeply, like, the intentionality behind it and mm-hmm. the value of that. But the effects of that, the goal of marriage, it ripples through our entire conception of what it is to be romantic mm-hmm. or to be sexual. Mm-hmm. And so people think of that singular connection as paramount, even when they're just dating, mm-hmm. like the importance of it. Mm-hmm. And growing up, I think especially like a lot of young men, the only person that they feel comfortable confiding in is their partner. Mm-hmm. The only person with whom they can have like a kind of open, vulnerable, intimate and emotional connection Mm -hmm. is their partner. And not only is that a kind of slender thread, which could be severed by circumstance Mm -hmm. or by the end of the relationship, but it's a lot for their partner to deal with. It's a lot of emotional labor for women to deal with. And Mm -hmm. the effect Mm -hmm. that I saw again and again growing up was these young men like fashioning a critical emotional connection Mm -hmm. with uh, a girl, not to be all heteronormative about it, but that was usually, these usually straight guys. And what would happen is they had nothing else. And when that relationship ended, this girl who had other friends who had, you know, people that they could confide in, Mm -hmm. you know, a more diverse and diffuse social network Mm -hmm. would be fine. Mm -hmm. And the boy would be reduced back to this, emotional mean state mm-hmm. they would be severed from community often mm-hmm. her friends were his friends because mm-hmm. male friendships are again without being essentialist often more combative often less open and this is just a single example of mm-hmm. the ways i think that like this emphasis on a single essential mm-hmm. and all-encompassing relationship can harm both parties yeah Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, I just see it putting so much pressure Mm -hmm. on relationships to like last, Mm -hmm. you know, I hear people being like, I don't know what I would do. I don't, I wouldn't know who I was if I wasn't in this one relationship Mm -hmm. that has taken over my identity and my life. Mm -hmm. And I think as someone who 
has a history of like unhealthy, toxic, abusive, monogamous relationships in my younger years, because that's the script that I was given, right? I'm from Alabama. Like I was called an old maid at 22 because I wasn't married yet. You know, it like, that's the culture I was raised in. And so to be a quote unquote successful person and a quote unquote successful socialized feminine person, Mm -hmm. like being AFAB, assigned female at birth, non-binary person terminology there. But yeah, I I was like, okay, so in order to be like a successful adult, I have to put all of my eggs in this one relationship basket and then it has to work or I'm going to have nothing left. And it put an immense amount of pressure on that relationship. And it, it really incentivized me to stay in unhealthy dynamics and be unhappy as a person for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of sadness, that kind of grief for our identity, grief for like what we wanted our life to be. I don't think that is ever talked about in especially like grief work spaces. We talk about all the time, like, oh, people don't, don't really acknowledge like pet loss. People Mm -hmm. don't really acknowledge, oh, when you get a divorce, right? But the loss of identity that can happen when the pressure to adhere to social norms takes over. I don't know. I feel like that's really like a rich area to talk about Mm -hmm. these emotions that run very parallel to how it feels to lose a loved one or a pet or something that is talked about more commonly. Well said. And I think as you indicated, like all of us exist, you sort of enmeshed in these systems, unable to move against them. It's like swimming in a pool. You can't move without pressing against the water. Mm -hmm. It's the medium in which we're, we're forced to exist. Mm -hmm. But like, although we're all, here we live in a society mm-hmm. it's you know afab femme people mm-hmm. women who i think bear the brunt of its effects often mm-hmm. you mentioned being called an old maid mm-hmm. you know uh i used to work for the japanese government and mm-hmm. in japan a not a not uncommon term for an unwed woman in her early 20s is christmas cake because christmas cake it's like fruitcake, you know, mm-hmm. you throw it out after the 25th. <laughs> My God. <laughs> it's, yeah. Shit. That's a uh, grim. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty grim. But like to live, to exist in an environment like that, with that pressure on you to perform a specific social function mm-hmm. that is deeply personal. And like I said, I think people, you know, it, we exist in this kind of like void of meaning. Modernity mm-hmm. is... Mm-hmm. It's extremely atomized, extremely individualized. We're, uh, you know, we're overstimulated. We're numb. We're interconnected, but we're mm-hmm. isolated. It's a difficult time to be alive and to fashion meaning. In my opinion, this is all just me talking. Yeah. But um, like to have this deeply, per- like this deeply personal pressure placed mm-hmm. upon you to bind your life to another person, mm-hmm. I think can be troubling and can be destabilizing and can eclipse and preclude other forms of connection, Mm -hmm. which I think maybe brings us back to Polly. And Mm -hmm. I try not to be evangelical about it, but I think that there is radical potential, even just in its consideration. And Mm -hmm. some of the the beauty of queerness Mm -hmm. or of these like, you know, unusual, it's kind of a loaded term, these kind of um, non-normative identities and behaviors is that even to consider them Mm -hmm. throws your own beliefs into relief. You can Mm -hmm. be like, you know, just to consider as a, as a teen, like, am I the gender I was assigned at birth Mm -hmm. to entertain those thoughts, to have that vocabulary, even if you 
are like, oh, I am. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I yeah. am not worried about it at all. Yeah. That is a radical realignment of your conception of the world, mm-hmm. even just to be able to entertain those thoughts. And mm-hmm. so too with Polly, to be able to consider to what degree monogamy is an essential component in your life or to what degree you prioritize romance mm-hmm. in your life. And I think a lot of people nowadays um, are weighing these these difficult non-normative considerations. And a lot mm-hmm. of women uh, are, for instance, saying, do I want children? Right. Right. Do I want to get married? Like, do I need to follow these social scripts? Can right. I find an alternative that is of value to me? Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad the conversation went in that zone because I have a feeling a lot of our listeners are going to, we're going to run the risk of alienating folks because mm-hmm. like they are in traditional monogamous sure, long-term sure. marriages and like that I by by no means am I trying to say that that is wrong mm-hmm. or the wrong way to do mm-hmm. it or that that doesn't work for some people, mm-hmm. right? And I don't ever want to paint with a broad brush, mm-hmm. right? Like no population is a monolith and monogamy and marriage as, as like a, a goal that you want for your life is totally valid. Mm-hmm. But I also, in the same way that polyamory is probably not for everyone, I think monogamy is probably not for everyone either. And we just are not taught to question that ever. And I love that you frame questioning itself as the radical act, right? Mm -hmm. It's not even ever acting on it. It's like just the questioning, just the having that self-knowledge. The fact that the questioning is what is framed as radical Mm -hmm. is really important, Mm -hmm. I think, because it is valid to be like, would I be interested in or open to some form of non-monogamy, whether that's just an occasional like swinging sesh or Mm -hmm. do I want multiple partners or do I want to do solo poly, right? Whatever that is. And if the answer is like, nope, that's not for me. Great. I mean, over the weekend, both of us were at weddings Mm -hmm. in different places in New Mexico. I was in Taos at this beautiful, wonderful, like days long Jewish wedding celebration, celebrating the love of two of my friends. That is just so beautiful to witness. It's mm-hmm. like this glow. And I would never tell them that they're wrong because they're monogamous, right? It works for them. That's great. I have been married and it was the opposite. It like closed me off. It shut me down. I felt isolated. I did not feel connected to my community through that. And so it's not for me. Mm-hmm. And being able to look at stuff and say, good for you, not for me, in both and all directions, mm-hmm. I think is also never talked about enough in our society. Absolutely. And you brought up an excellent point. The wedding that I attended, these two people, I mean, I cried. Their vows were so beautiful. The um, the woman has a kid. And so like, it's this joining of families. And it's like this amazing thing. I've known them for a long time. Their marriage, their relationship was saved by non-monogamy. They, you know, attended a... Mm-hmm. Sex party. Am I allowed to say that? I think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't really for them, but it was so reaffirming. The the kind of like acknowledgement of the, the exploration, the acknowledgement of what they actually desired mm-hmm. reaffirmed their love for each other. They were basically like, okay, you know, I've tried this with you. I feel secure in it. Mm-hmm. And critically, I now see how much I value you and mm-hmm. that I know I feel as though I'm not restricted. Right. Like I could choose this, but now that I've tried it, 
all I want is you, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's the, that, that act of agency in mm-hmm. choosing whatever it is that you choose that is empowering and feels good. Mm-hmm. And that I think a lot of people actually don't ever consider when getting into relationships. It's like, we're in this and now we have to do it because we said these vows. It's like, we don't ever consider that we still have agency mm-hmm. in choosing every day. I love that. Sure. And I think, you know, these are in t- these dramatically change the kind of structure of your life um, that if your principle, you know, if your, your connection with someone in a monogamous relationship is the way in which you process grief, if mm-hmm. they're the person that you connect with, that's amazing. That's mm-hmm. ideal. Mm-hmm. I advocate diverse. I would, like I said, I'm not evangelical about poly, but I advocate a diversity of relationships in your mm-hmm. life, which is mm-hmm. to say friendships mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. at a kind of like, concentric rings of friendships, people that you mm-hmm. are connected to at a distance, people that you are close with that you see all the time, people mm-hmm. you feel you can confide in, mm-hmm. people that you feel you can be adventurous with, mm-hmm. that these relationships are often defining of the self. That, mm-hmm. you know, this is, it, it grants a kind of like joyful elasticity mm-hmm. to what it is to be human that you can decide to be, you know, adventurous with someone. Yeah. Am I, am I making sense? I I think so for, for me at least. And, um, I mean, you're just touching on so much of the relationship anarchy manifesto right Mm -hmm. now, because what I actually misunderstood about relationship anarchy is that it's, it's not a style of relationship. It's a lens through which to view relationships. So people who are in monogamy can also be relationship anarchists in that it, strips away the prescribed hierarchy mm-hmm. of relationship titles. Mm-hmm. So what we were talking about earlier, like, okay, well, my spouse is automatically the most important person mm-hmm. in my life. They must take priority over everyone else, including my friends, my family, my parents, whatever, any other relationship I might have. It takes that away and says that I love my spouse and we have a wonderful connection. I also love my lifelong best friend and we have a wonderful connection Mm -hmm. and I am allowed to desire quality time and emotional intimacy and whatever else with these other people. Mm -hmm. And, and we're getting rid of that prescriptive expectation of what those relationships look like that have been handed to us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, that's what I think that you're advocating for here is this kind of broadening of relationships that are allowed to be important. Mm -hmm. This broadening of people who are allowed to be close to us Mm -hmm. without it being like weird or taboo Mm -hmm. or cheating or whatever, doing it wrong, you know? And, and I do think that that is important in our world when things like a a loss happens, Mm -hmm. right? I think that is important when we are going through grief or other hard emotions. Um, And I think you're really hitting the nail on the head here of like, yeah, diversifying mm-hmm. your support system, broadening your support system, making room in your life for getting close to lots of different mm-hmm. people. Um, it's, it would change the way that we, that we deal with grief. I hosted a grief circle a couple, like a month ago, and this lovely couple came and one of them had experienced like three successive deaths mm-hmm. of sibling best friend father Mm -hmm. and you know they were like 
I love my, my spouse, but I feel so alone and isolated. Mm -hmm. I have nowhere to go with all of this emotion and it's becoming too much for my spouse, my partner Mm -hmm. to handle. What do I do? You know, because like my best friend is who I would have gone to when my dad died, but they passed and then my dad died and Mm -hmm. who do I turn right? And so it's a perfect example of how, you know, especially in a death avoidant culture like mm-hmm. ours is today where we don't normalize mm-hmm. talking about loss normally like we would any other, right? We, we talk about like, Oh, I went on a cool date the other day, or, you know, I got a promotion at work mm-hmm. or whatever, but we don't talk about like, man, you know, I'm really struggling with this loss that I'm feeling from this important person to me who died a couple of years ago. It's just, that's considered like, oh, it's taboo. Oh, you're being negative. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you you should, you know, at least they're not suffering anymore, right? There's all this disenfranchisement of being in those spaces, um, like especially in that world that we live in. The answer to me is always going to be community support, mm-hmm. being in it together, learning how to listen to each other in those spaces, learning how to protect our own needs while being able to support other Mm -hmm. people in those spaces in all types of grief and loss. Mm -hmm. Again, especially in like polydynamics, it's, it's work to figure out like, okay, my partner broke up with their other partner. (laughs) How do I support them in this grief when I'm personally involved and I'm friends with the other person in the breakup, right? Or, Mm -hmm. but with that wider cast net, especially in like kitchen table, which is like what we practice where everyone who's involved in these relationships knows each other and is friends with each other. It's we're I, I don't know. I feel like we're a better able to be there for each other in healthy capacities and like normalize talking about these feelings. And now I've gone off on a tangent, but Hey, I think that this is tangent after tangent. <laughs> Hopefully the viewers, the listeners yeah. find it entertaining. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad that you used are speaking about grief because, you know, we started out discussing, you know, the ways in which we connect and eventually it all, like all relationships inevitably, eventually not predominantly, not Mm -hmm. entirely, but will bend towards grief, will experience Mm -hmm. it. And grief, I think has like so many permutations Mm -hmm. that death Mm -hmm. is its most acute form often, Mm -hmm. but it can be the loss of identity, Mm -hmm. the the grief of a period in your life, you know, an injury, bodies changing. Mm -hmm. Um, You you can grieve for potential selves, Mm -hmm. for like ambition that is no longer fulfillable. Mm -hmm. And of course you can grieve breakups. I think that that's Mm -hmm. often a kind of like um, punctuated grief that we experience Mm -hmm. through our lives is the loss of a partner where they haven't died Mm-hmm. hopefully, but they're no longer in our lives. Mm-hmm. And polyamory, you know, I, I think it puts you in the unique, well, the unusual circumstance mm-hmm. of often having to be in a relationship mm-hmm. with someone mm-hmm. who is grieving mm-hmm. the loss of another relationship, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is rarely a thing that, you know, monogamous relationships don't tend to overlap mm-hmm. in this way. Mm-hmm. And it's also in, you know, the inverse of that is, um, grieving a relationship while mm-hmm. having commitments to other people. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that grief is often like an intrinsically social phenomenon, but mm-hmm. it can also be deeply personal. I think that it is, it's <clears throat> how best to put this. It like death, especially can leave 
a hole in your heart that cannot be mm-hmm. filled. But mm-hmm. if you follow the steps, if you grieve properly, you can at least put traffic cones around the hole so you don't keep falling in, mm-hmm. right? That it is often like a fundamental shift in the self. And only so much of that can be born by another person because the other person, your partner, your parent, whomever, is not grieving like you are like you feel it right it's like pain to feel to be in pain is to have certainty to be told someone else is in pain is to have doubt Mm -hmm. like you don't experience it you're not Mm. you're not there Mm -hmm. and so being grieving is so internal Mm -hmm. and it to vicariously grieve is a different thing Mm -hmm. it's um complicated by by these diffuse networks of people right it's it's complicated it's complicated and challenging in its own way especially again because like there mm-hmm. um because we're not taught how to support one another mm-hmm. right like when when my mom passed my college i was in college i was 18 mm-hmm. it's my freshman year and my friends were like let's just get wasted every night mm-hmm. so we don't have to talk about this mm-hmm. and that's how we're going to be there and show up for you mm-hmm. right let's smoke a lot of weed mm-hmm. let's you know do wild unsafe things to mm-hmm. like because we don't know how to help you there's all this intense emotion and and we're trying our best my college professors did not know how to talk to mm-hmm. me you know and i'm such a verbal processor and being in art school i would like be in like a sketchbook review and just want to talk about how I felt because that's what I was sketching. And my professors would just be like, Oh, sounds like you need another week off of classes. Here you go. Get it, you know, and like not know how to just sit there and listen with, and all that really needed saying was that sounds so hard. Mm-hmm. That sucks. And I wish I could help, yeah. you know, like mm-hmm. that's, that's how we, sit with each other and we're just not taught how to do that. It sounds like the easiest thing in the world, but human instinct is to see someone else in pain and want to fix it. I think that that's the perfect way of putting it, that Mm -hmm. sometimes the most difficult thing to do is just to be unobtrusively available Mm -hmm. and that that's difficult. And it's difficult to see someone that you care about in pain, to see Mm -hmm. anyone in pain and not rush to pretend that you're able to fix it mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to in some cases, even perhaps overstep boundaries. It, mm-hmm. it reminds me a bit about discussions regarding like privilege yeah. where sometimes the essential step is acknowledging that you don't really understand. Mm-hmm. And that from there, like empathy and assistance can flow. You're just like, I don't, I don't really know yeah. what you're going through, but yeah. I want to be here. Like, mm-hmm. and just like a demonstration of care. Does that feel like, Oh yeah. Does that feel true to you? I, it absolutely does mm-hmm. for sure. And I, I get, I mean, this is really off in the left field, but with, with the privilege discussion in any direction, you know, it's like, I think that's one thing that's so difficult for so many people. It's like, well, I can't be privileged because I suffer too. I have pain too. My life isn't perfect. And that, that's not what it's saying. It's saying like, yeah, I have a different experience than you. And even though I don't understand what you're going through, I'm here mm-hmm. to support you, you know? And I think that's a perfect analogy. And right? it's, I, I mean, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, and it's important too. It's difficult to decenter the self in these mm-hmm. circumstances. Mm-hmm. If someone else is grieving to not slip into kind of like 
it's all it's always it's almost always benign but this kind of like purposeless hyperactivity like oh my god I want to like yeah. trying to hug them and like, insert what yourself. can I do yeah what can I yeah. do to help you yeah. and you know that can, can cover up like that disguises the uncomfortable fact that there's sometimes nothing to do mm-hmm. and that especially in you know diff- like large communities grief manifests unexpectedly that mm-hmm. like you may find comfort in connecting with someone that you don't usually connect with mm-hmm. an old friend who's been through something similar or mm-hmm. you know an ex or mm-hmm. something and that can decenter the people in your innermost ring or your partner or your partners mm-hmm. and cause people to seek out alternative forms of comfort and connection mm-hmm. that you're in a state of like unusually heightened and deeply internal suffering mm-hmm. and that uh, it can be very hard to ex- you know I want to put this delicately it can be hard to be around someone who's grieving acutely mm-hmm. um, it's not always an easy thing to be to feel as though you're useless to feel mm-hmm. as though someone you love is suffering or to feel like this moment in their life is critical mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. important to them and you are useless they're seeking out mm-hmm. alternatives yeah and and totally that resonates and again i think that it's pointing back to this like death and grief avoidance that is just so such a pillar of our culture because yeah, we, we have to feel useful. We have to Mm -hmm. feel productive and that is not the way that grief works. And even a second ago, you said something about like grieving properly. And it's like, that's such a hard thing to even wrap one's mind around because it's going to look so different to each person and you're not going to know what that looks like for you, even in different relationships that you have in your life, right? Like grieving my mom looks very different than grieving my friend. I lost to suicide in college two years later, which looked very different than grieving my cat that passed like 10 years later. And, um, I needed different things and time felt different and ritual felt different. And, the way I wanted to talk about it felt different. And so when the people are, that are close to us don't understand that intrinsically about loss mm-hmm. and want to fix it, but can't, mm-hmm. right? It it creates these big wedges in relationship mm-hmm. that we also don't have a roadmap for navigating either. And so all of this is just pointing back to the need for better education around how to have healthy, frank, honest conversations about death and grief and loss and relationship and relating to one another and taking agency, having the autonomy to do that in a way that actually has value and meaning to you, right? And isn't conforming to some social script, right? And I think it relates very directly to my identity as a polyamorous person because of the level of vulnerability it takes to work on yourself and do difficult relationships and do difficult things. The level of communication skills that one must develop in order to be in good, healthy, challenging, and growthful relationships, Mm -hmm. right? 
supporting each other through grief and hard times is directly wrapped up in and related to that. And like those two things are inextricable in my mind Mm -hmm. for myself. So yeah. Well, you say that like education is a critical component in this. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you'd like to, like if you could impart like a singular lesson, something that you wish was known more broadly throughout the population, something that Mm -hmm. you wish was understood intuitively about Mm -hmm. grief or about loss that if you could educate people with the snap Just of a finger, one thing, uh, yeah. it's hard to pick one I know, thing. I, put, I mean, let me do to a put, top three. Hard to put you on the spot. <laughs> let yeah. me do a I'm top happy. Three. To, I'm happy to volunteer something as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, we'll take turns. Maybe that's a question okay. for both of us. So our top three for me is, um, just language for someone in your life that's experiencing grief. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that I care very deeply about is mitigating, um, and, and avoiding disenfranchising someone's grief. So like when my mom passed of suicide, people were like, Oh, well, at least she's not in pain anymore. Mm -hmm. At least you don't have to deal with it anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, you know, I'm sure she feels better Mm -hmm. in heaven or whatever. And it's like, well, a, that doesn't help me in how I'm feeling Mm -hmm. B that I don't believe in heaven. Mm -hmm. So what you said is gibberish to me and like not comforting. And what you're saying is not acknowledging that like, I am in pain mm-hmm. right now. And even if you did believe in heaven, even if you were, it's you, not you were, a help to me, yeah, right? That something terrible has happened. Mm-hmm. I am traumatized by the violence of mm-hmm. it all. Like this is a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is glossing over that and, te- and signaling to me mm-hmm. that my feelings are inappropriate, that my feelings are un- invalid mm-hmm. and that my feelings are, um, like incorrect Mm -hmm. basically. And that is never what we want to do to someone who is grieving. So like just learning how to like that, it's okay to say that is so hard Mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry you're experiencing that, you know, like Mm -hmm. that, maybe that's like the number one thing Mm -hmm. that I would just snap of fingers, have everyone more intuitively know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Let me see. It's my turn now. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. What have I done? (laughs) I think um, what I would say is that there is no shortcut to mourning. That like um, that mourning is like an essential process, and it can't be microwaved. That that to circumvent it, to attempt to skip to the end, I think is likely to to cause dysfunction mm-hmm. or despair mm-hmm. that it it's like it it's an uncomfortable process but mm-hmm. it's an essential one mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. you know I think you touched on it a little bit in yours but we're a society that it flees um and recoils at every opportunity from distress and from mm-hmm. pain and from the frailty of the body and from the certainty of death mm-hmm. and from the messy often disquieting or disgusting processes that underpin our economy or our identity or our bodies that we have vacuum sealed and hermetically bound so much of the human world that we don't, we don't like to know where our food comes from. We don't like to think about death. And so when something like true, like the kind of, um, gross and distressing confrontation with mortality Mm -hmm. rears its head, we can't help but try and banish it. That Mm -hmm. our instinct is to rush through it, Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. fast forward, and just acknowledging that it is like 
more than essential, it's inescapable. Mm -hmm. Like it, I think if people just knew that, if people felt it in their bones, mm -hmm. that this has to happen, that maybe we would be better able to deal with it. Yeah, I love that. That's very well said. And I agree completely. And I talk about it all the time on social media and blog posts on this podcast that like, that is the only thing that is actually inevitable for everyone. It's the only thing that is actually guaranteed to everyone. And yet that's the like the thing that I think we avoid talking about the most mm -hmm. because it's the most uncomfortable. Sure. It's unknown. There's no way to know what happens on the other side of that. And, and sitting with that fact more and more and more, mm -hmm. Getting used to that fact, right, is is only going to help us. So I think that was very, very well Thank said. Thank you. I, I yeah. think perhaps its inevitability has become an excuse for people to avoid its discussion, where it's like, mm -hmm. what is there to say? We know. Mm -hmm. We don't like to think about it. Mm -hmm. We know. Mm -hmm. And that that is kind of a – and you surrender so many ways mm -hmm. of, like, confronting death with mm -hmm. grace and with dignity mm -hmm. by – by simply saying like there is nothing to do mm -hmm. that we see death as perhaps a singular like a singular intrinsic moment a boundary where mm -hmm. alive or dead you can't be partly dead you're totally dead but mm -hmm. i think in practice that like so many things in our lives that there are spectrums and that mm -hmm. one can die very slowly mm -hmm. and one can be surrounded by death mm -hmm. or immersed in death that mm -hmm. one can suffer vicarious death mm -hmm. and that like it isn't this singular, mm -hmm. indefeat, like indestructible, undefeatable mm -hmm. confrontation at the very mm -hmm. end of our lives. That it's something that if we acknowledge the complexity of it, we can be better prepared for mm -hmm. it. Am I, is that making sense? 100%. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I definitely think so. And I've never heard it really put quite like that before, but it does make sense to me, mm -hmm. you know, like because that's coming from the very common perspective of like death as a problem to solve, mm -hmm. you know, this like yearning for eternal youth or eternal life or longer life equals better life mm -hmm. automatically. Or right. We're going to upload our brain to, to the, the cloud. So we'll keep yeah. existing. Exactly. Like, yeah. like death is this problem to solve. Mm -hmm. That perspective is what makes conversation around it futile. Right. Mm -hmm. But if we can switch our perspective mm -hmm. from death is a problem to solve to death is actually a really important part of being human. Mm -hmm. Death is the period at the end of this very long run on sentence that I'm living. Mm -hmm. And that closure, that finality, that finiteness is actually what gives all the stuff in it meaning, right? Mm -hmm. If, if this run on sentence got to go on and on and on forever, mm -hmm. right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, have as much meaning it wouldn't mm -hmm. be this special little encapsulated experience that i'm having right and so um and yeah i mean it as i said i think it it relates to the way that we think in kind of binary ways when mm -hmm. spectrums are almost always not always but almost mm -hmm. always preferable and like love or relationships that humans are like we abhor spectrums we love categories oh my god mm -hmm. like our, our pattern seeking brains mm -hmm. cannot help but see things in binaristic ways and like often i think ritual is a way of trying to bring you know coming back to marriage a little bit mm -hmm. bring the natural world which is extraordinarily messy mm -hmm. infinitely complex into a way where it's like okay actually mm -hmm. you know there's this and then there's this when i think human life you are 
a little bit less of a child every day, every day, you're a little bit more of an adult. You grow and you grow and you grow and you grow. And that's a spectrum. But we don't like that. Right. And so mm-hmm. we, we said, well, today you were a child. Mm-hmm. You did this ritual. And now tomorrow you're, you're an adult. Mm-hmm. It's a binary. We don't think about yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Or we think about like our romantic or our sexual relationships. We'd say like, well, you know, I have all of these relationships in my life, all of these loves, all of these flings, all of these partners, mm-hmm. and none of that counts. Mm-hmm. None of that matters. I have my true love now. Mm-hmm. My, mm-hmm. I've been, now I'm married. It's yes and, or no, either or. Exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the, this is, this is the singular person. And again, I, if you're monogamous, excellent. Good for you. Uh, good for you. I love <laughs> yeah. it. I'm just speaking as to the way that we are often forced to kind of vivisect ourselves to right. say, to like, to take those prior relationships and memory hold them, mm-hmm. to take our grief and think of it as something where you were grieving and now you're not mm-hmm. when really it's always, it, it's unpredictable and reemergent. Yes. And cyclical and mm-hmm. you backtrack and you backslide and then you feel better and then you feel worse again. It's very nonlinear mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. And communities where you have friends that you are attracted to or that could be partners or partners that could one day be friends mm-hmm. that these, you know, it's difficult to endure and your brain bucks against it. It resists it. And so too, like most acutely it's death, the, you know, the finale mm-hmm. we can't help but see as singular and conclusive mm-hmm. when really it is intermeshed with us at every level all mm-hmm. the time. Um, and that's hard. I think you can spend a lifetime trying to like accept and understand that and yeah. still come up short. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. Oh, so well said. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. This is the first time I've had someone from my personal life on. So I really appreciate you being willing to share. Of course, I'm honored to be here. And we have such exciting discussions, such like interesting conversations in our daily life. And I hope that um, other people find them substantial and meaty and worthy of listening as well. Death Curious is produced by Parting Stone. For more Death Curious education and content, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Death Curious or check out Parting Stone at partingstone.com.